Um, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Remedy. So go ahead and flip open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. I just want to make one quick announcement before we read the text. Um, out on the, that little wooden table in the lobby, there are these little square sheets of paper that say pledge for Courtney and Teddy. Uh, these are missionaries that we plan on sending out uh, soon to the North Asia part of the world. Um, and so we've been asking, asked essentially to make a pledge financially to them. Uh, and today's kind of the due date in which we're going to alert them how much we've pledged as a church. However, if you haven't made up your mind and you're still thinking and praying about it, we're still accepting pledges at a later time. So you can still turn it in after this Sunday. But today's kind of the date that we're going to count up what we have so far and communicate that number uh, to them. So make sure you grab that little square sheet of paper out there. Go ahead and stand up with me as we read all of Daniel 11, 1 through 45. Um, the most important part about the sermon is the, the Bible. Um, so we're going to read all of Daniel 11, um, 1 through 45. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up in her attendance, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and, sh and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall arise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. 
And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. And he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fail and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed, and he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. He shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Katem shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. And shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up an abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white. Until the time of end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. Shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold, silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. And he shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. 
He shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of treasures of gold and silver and all precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east of the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, make your word clear to us. Lord, allow us to be comforted and challenged and not confused. Uh, We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit today as we worship you on the Lord's day today and as we strive to see another greater glimpse of your glory in the face of Jesus. um, Enable us here to sing, to hear, to pray, to say your words and to have them written on our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I have the privilege of kind of my, my main job is to, I teach at a classical university model Christian school, which is a whole lot of fancy words, um, but classical is kind of one of the harder things to explain uh, when people ask, like, hey, what's a classical school? Um, but in a nutshell, it's a return to a kind of educational style that rose out of the classical time period, which is ancient Greece and ancient Rome, and then sometimes people include ancient Israel. So if you're looking at it in terms of languages, it's Greek, it's Latin, and sometimes it's Hebrew. Um, so interesting enough, we call ourselves at Remedy a Reformed Baptist church. Reformed theology is just another word for biblical theology, according to Spurgeon. So that's kind of his thing, so don't get caught up on the, the name Reformed. Uh, But the Reformation itself actually arose out of a return to the classical time period, um, and this was called the Renaissance. So in the 1300s to the 1500s, we have this Renaissance, which is rebirth, and Renaissance humanism came to prominence during this time. And what Renaissance humanism was, um, many people think humanism, they're like, oh, this is where you take humans, you put them in the center of the universe, and you worship them. That's not what Renaissance humanism was. Renaissance humanism was a return. It was human beings reading the ancient Greek works, the ancient Latin works, and sometimes the ancient Hebrew works, trying to take the values they find there and apply it to current culture. That's what uh, the humanists of the Renaissance would do. And so it just so happens to be that the New Testament is a classical work, meaning it's written in Greek, And it was written during the classical time period. And so one of the works that these humanists were returning to, particularly Christian humanists, was the Greek New Testament, the New Testament in its original language. And so you had this guy named Erasmus of Rotterdam who took all the Greek manuscripts that they had during the time of the New Testament books and he put it all in one volume and he published it and made it available to scholars who could read Greek. And this then was read by Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and pretty much every reformer you can name. 
and it had a great impact on the reformers in changing um, their theology and seeing some of the things, uh, some of the doctrines in the Catholic Church at the time being challenged. And more importantly than all of that, this then led these men to translate the Bible into languages that people could understand. So Luther then translates the Bible into German. William Tyndale translates the Bible into English. And now all of a sudden, people are hearing the Bible and sometimes reading the Bible in their own heart language for the first time in their life, and then the Reformation happens, right? So this is, this is coming out of a return to the classical works because they had to learn Greek, and then they took the Greek Bible and translated it into languages that people could understand. Well, interesting enough, our text today, in many ways, is also a return to some pretty major events that also take place smack dab middle in the classical world. So a return to the classical world helped restore the Bible to the center of the Christian's walk. And in our text today, a return to the classical world or prophecies that prophesy about certain events that are going to happen in the classical world and beyond, they're going to help us prepare as followers of Jesus for the end times, how to stand firm in the midst of persecution and to stand firm and remain pure in the midst of false teaching. So we're going to break up our text into three sections, verses 2 through 20, verses 21 through 35, and then verses 36 through 45. And in each of these sections, we'll see the sovereignty and knowledge of God and how it should comfort and strengthen us in the middle of whatever we're going through during the time. So let's set the table a bit with the text. Some would say this entire passage is about the end times. And therefore, it doesn't have to have like historical fulfillment. That ultimately, this text is pointing us to what is it going to be like for the church in the end times? What is it going to be like for the people of God when the spirit of the Antichrist is out, right? And we're still awaiting the one complete Antichrist. Now, I agree, ultimately, this text points us to values and principles that will help us during those times. But I also think it has some historical fulfillment. Others will say since a chunk of this passage has historical fulfillment, it means that the book of Daniel wasn't written during the time of Daniel, but after the historical events it's talking about. Now, why do they say that, right? Usually it's the assumption that God can't reveal the future to people before it happens. And then that can lead you quite literally to a denial of God himself, period. So could Daniel have been written later about history that had already happened? Technically, we can say yes. Prophecy is not necessarily the telling of the future. Here's a quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, Prophecy is not history written in advance of time. Rather, it is present or future history interpreted from the standpoint of God's word. So it could be about present history, uh, but let me humbly recommend another view. The view of the humblest man to walk the earth. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 24, 15 says this. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and he continues, but here's here's the point. He just quoted Daniel, and he said Daniel's the one that talks about the abomination of desolation This takes place in uh, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 12. These phrases show up. And so Jesus says it's Daniel who 
who wrote these things, or Daniel who spoke these things. So we, we can just side with Jesus. Jesus' view is that the prophet Daniel was the one who spoke these things, and that Daniel was dead long before most of these events have historical fulfillment. And so we have examples here of a prophet being revealed by God things about the future history that's going to take place. And so we'll see that. But we also have some other things. All right, so here's my view. I'm just going to give it up front before we delve in. Verses 2 through 35 primarily refer to historical events that take place sometime between 486 B.C. and 164 B.C., or the beginning of King Xerxes in Persia and the death of Antiochus IV in 164 B.C., So that's verses 2 through 35. Verses 36 through 45 is about a future king in which Daniel 7 calls him the little horn and in which we call him in the New Testament calls him the Antichrist. So that's that's where I'm coming from uh, when we look through this. So we're going to look at kind of three points um, from this text. Our first one comes from verses 2 through 20. Our God supernaturally and sovereignly rules over all of history down to every intricate detail. Our God supernaturally and sovereignly rules over all of history down to every intricate detail. It's always, I think, tremendously assuring and comforting when the Lord God communicates to us that he's intimately involved And he's present with us wherever we're at. Um, I think of some examples. Psalm 139. The psalmist can go nowhere, even into death itself. He can go nowhere without God being present. He can also go nowhere without God knowing every intimate thought and word that he's going to speak before he even speaks it. Um, I think of times uh, in prayer where God reveals secrets from our own heart or maybe the hearts of those who are with us or the person we're praying for or maybe even the secrets of the heart of an unbeliever. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 24, 25 kind of gives us this. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship and declare that God is really among you. Right? This passage also can even remind us of Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who has this secret vision and all these thoughts on his heart about this, this dream that he had, and he's not revealing it to anyone, and he's holding it back, and then Daniel comes before him and tells him the dream and interprets it for him. And then what's Nebuchadnezzar's like, immediate reaction? There is a God that is uh, with Daniel, and he has revealed this to him. So God discloses the secrets and dreams of Nebuchadnezzar to Daniel? Or how about occasions, maybe, where God reveals specific things that will happen? Um, I knew a person who was praying about going on a mission trip, and he was impressed through prayer to go to his roommate's church service that night in which they were doing a missions conference, and that there would be a guest speaker from that country, and that that guest speaker would tell Americans what they need to know in order to go to that country and do mission. And he told his friends this, and he showed up to the church, and lo and behold, the guest speaker was from that country, and he told him what Americans need to go to that country. And so 
it's always comforting. It's reassuring when God, through his word, primarily through his word, communicates that he's with us and that he knows all things that we're going through and he knows all things that are going to be. It's comforting. And so this, pa- this passage, and particularly this section through verses 20, should give us that kind of comfort. So I'm going to roll out five really quick examples of what I would say is historical fulfillment. And the effect that this should have is God told this to Daniel well before it happened, and then it happened. And so that should make us reflect on the fact that we have a God who knows all things, and he's not surprised by anything that happens, and we can lean into him and we can trust him. So this is uh, A, Um, historical fulfillment number one, Xerxes, verse 2. So in chapter 10, verse 1, it's mentioned that this vision comes to Daniel during the third year of Cyrus the Great. And uh, most people's position is that Darius the Mede is the same as Cyrus the Great, or at least during Cyrus the Great's reign. So here in 12.2, we read this, or sorry, 11.2. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong... Uh, through his riches, he shall stir up, which literally means make war, against the kingdom of Greece. And so historically speaking, after Cyrus, you have Cambyses II, Bardia, Darius I, and then the fourth was the far richer of all of the kings of Persia. His name was Xerxes. Kind of famous things that happened with Xerxes in history. He is the king of Persia that marries Esther. So the book of Esther, that's King Xerxes. And then kind of the second one, is he was known for almost the entire Persian army being defeated by 300 Spartans and 10,000 conglomerations of other Greek uh, nationals. And so that's the Xerxes that we're talking about. And he quite literally did start a war with Greece and sailed over to Greece and invaded Greece, only to be defeated later on. So our second one, Alexander the Great. This is coming from verses 3 through 4. It's the three through four speak of a mighty king of Greece who will rise up and do whatever he wants. This is fulfilled in Alexander the Great, who united all of Greece, proceeds to then conquer the known world by about the age of 33, and then suddenly dies. We don't know what, of what of. He had a fever from the description, but he just dies. And then as the text reads, his kingdom was not given to his posterity or his children. That's true. They weren't. But it was divided out to the four winds of the heaven, mainly into four parts. So uh, earlier, Daniel has the same statement about Alexander the Great, the unigoat, the goat with one horn, the king of Greece who then breaks into four parts, right? The horn breaks into four parts. Same thing's going on here. Four of Alexander's generals, although it broke up into more than technically four parts, there were four major enduring parts to Alexander's kingdom, and it was given to generals as they fought and squirmished over the land. All right, so our text now then takes a turn. You might have noticed king of the north, king of the south, king of the north, king of the south, over and over and over and over again. And you might be asking, why on earth do we care about the king of the north and the king of the south? Well, the king of the north and the king of the south, and you can put up number three. Um, This is mainly verses five through six. The kings of the south were the Ptolemies of Egypt And the kings of the north were the Seleucid dynasty, uh, which was mainly Israel and some of the Middle East. And so why does the text shift to the kings of the north and the kings of the south? Because both of those kings, after Alexander the Great, owned parts of Israel. And so the people of God, the covenant people of God, 
were caught in the middle, quite literally, between those two kingdoms. And so the rest of this text is just describing the various skirmishes between the Ptolemaic dynasty and the Seleucid dynasty. There's other things going on, uh, but that's what's going on here. So the text focuses on these two because Israel is not... Um, they're back in their land, but they're partly being ruled by these two dynasties um, after Alexander the Great's death. And so verses 3 through 5... Uh, describe the first two kings, Ptolemy, um, Soter, and Seleucus, the first one, Seleucus the first. All right, fourth, Antiochus the Three's up and down reign, and also Cleopatra, and this is verses 11 through 17. So 11b says this, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And this describes Antiochus the third fighting against Ptolemy the fourth, he had a greater army. He went into Egypt, and for whatever reason, Ptolemy destroyed him. Uh, Antiochus lost 17,000 troops, and Egypt only lost 2,000, right? So this greater multitude was defeated by a smaller multitude. Verses 13 through 17 then describe Antiochus's comeback. He attacked Egypt again with another massive army in verse 13. He drove the Egyptians to Sidon to eventually surrender via a siege. This is described in verse 15. Israel passed into the control of the king of the north or the Seleucid dynasty. This is verse 16. And then uh, he gives his daughter Cleopatra to one of the Ptolemy kings, Ptolemy V, as a wife. And the hope was that the Seleucids would then be infused into the Ptolemaic empire. But verse 17 says, He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Why? Because historically, Cleopatra sides with Ptolemy, and then she takes over the Ptolemaic kingdom, and she ends up being the last Ptolemaic ruler over Egypt when she dies later on um, under the reign of Augustus Caesar in Rome. All right, last one. Antiochus III is defeated by Scipio Africanus of Rome, and this is verses 18 through 19. So Antiochus III, again, is back on the scene He's defeated by the Roman consul Scipio. This is described in verse 18, kind of the second half of 18. And then he's killed while robbing a temple to pay off Rome. And this is described in verse 19b. But he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. He was literally just killed in the midst of robbing a temple. Body disappeared. Wasn't found. So all this is like, oh my gosh, we're sitting in history class, right? Um, Unless you like history. I'm a history teacher, so I like history. But I'm giving the details here because it's so interesting to me that God gives all these intimate details to Daniel hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years before a lot of it happens, right? Again, it's emphasizing that God is sovereign, and he's not surprised, and he's in control of even the intimate little level details. So three things to kind of end our point here. Daniel's audience lived through this history, and they didn't have the advantage that we have to look back on it and say, oh, there's fulfillment all over the place. But it would have served as a decade-to-decade reminder of God's sovereignty and ability to keep his word and his promises to his people. Second thing is there's a pattern all throughout this passage, the pattern of basically governments and kingdoms and nations having all these plans to expand and become big and strong, and then an immediate, like, just snap of the finger, they're gone. Alexander the Great, right? Age of 33, owned the entire world, 
gone. Um, so for, uh, Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, man proposes and God disposes, right? Man proposes, they have many plans on their heart, but only the purposes of God remain. Ian Duigoid, that was an interesting pronunciation of that name, uh, gives a great description of the futility of politics here in Daniel 11. He says this, the balance of power in earthly politics may shift, but it never comes to a permanent rest. On the one hand, therefore, Daniel 11 shows us the fallen world pursuing the wind and finding it elusive. What do power and politics gain for all their toil? And it's a rhetorical question. Nothing, right? And you see this again. I, you know, if we were to write it down, verse 4, verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, verse 11, verse 12, verse 14, verse 18, verse 19, verse 20. There's 10 examples in the first 20 verses of just great plans coming to nothing, right? And God not being surprised. Finally, here we have demonstrably, uh, demonstrable testimony to God's faithfulness. Uh, the interpretive angel, or Jesus, of Daniel 10, depending on your view, uh, gave this vision to Daniel, and now we see elements of it already having been fulfilled. And so we can trust that all of it will be fulfilled. You can trust your God remedy. That's basically point one. We can trust our God. He's faithful, and he sovereignly rules over every aspect of history. And we see it here. The text calls us to place our trust in the God of the Bible and not in the many plans on a man's heart, right? So let's look at our second part. This is also partially historically fulfilled already. Second part is this, Antiochus IV. This is the, the bad guy, the, the abomination of desolation. A lot of the Jews believe this was that guy. Antiochus IV is a type or a kind of the Antichrist, and thus things that happen during his reign and persecution can help us stand firm in the midst of false teaching and persecution. So this is mainly verses 20 through 35. So before we can pull some principles for the church from verses 20 through 35, we need to establish how do 20 through 35 relate to verses 36, and I would argue all the way through 12, chapter 12, verse 3. Scholars debate whether these two sections are describing the same person, namely, here's Antiochus IV, and then verses 36 on, here's Antiochus IV again, just recapitulated or restoried, retold. Um, some take that, that view, although it, it does seem that his uh, reign is kind of signaled as an end in verse 35. It says this, until the time of end, for it still awaits the appointed time. This is kind of a reoccurring theme throughout this passage, and usually it means your rule's done, right? The time of end. Um, so let's look at this. There's, there's reasons why people think 36 through 12 through 3 are the same, right? Because they are parallel. So I'll give you a couple of things here. The first is the focus point. Verse 21 tells us it's a contemptible person, right? And then it goes on to describe this contemptible person, Look at verse 36. The focus shifts from contemptible person to the word king. It's a king. Each of these sections then going parallel with each other, they have three parts. So part A of both sections are about the rises and the successes of the contemptible person in verses 21 through 24 
and then the king in verse 36 through 39. And kind of the next part, both sections are about the people of God's conflict and oppression during the reign of the contemptible person, verse 25 through 31, and then this king, verses 40 through 45. And then it ends, both sections end, with the people of God suffering in steadfastness or lack thereof. And this is shown in the contemptible person's reign in verses 32 through 35. And then chapter 12, 1 through 3 covers the king. So here's, here's what Dale Ralph Davis concludes from this. The two people are parallel to each other, but they're different. One is Antiochus IV, the other is the Antichrist. So why should we conclude the second is the Antichrist? Read Daniel 12, 1 through 3 with me. It says, At that time shall arise Michael, and again, this time is the king's rule. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charged, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep, which just means they're dead, in the dust of the earth shall awake, and some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This seems to be, in my estimation, talking about the end times, the final judgment, the resurrection of the dead, where some will rise to eternal life and some will rise to, to judgment. That can't possibly be referring to Antioch. Antioch is the fourth, right? So let's look at 20 through 35. How does Antiochus um, show us um, things for us today as the church to endure in the midst of persecution? Well, first, he shows us that the Antichrist ultimately will try to uh, kill the people of God. He, he's filled with anger for the people of God. Now, Antiochus in, in history was filled with anger likely because of Rome. Verse 30 says this, For the ships of Ketem, or Cyprus, shall come against him, he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. All right? And so this is describing a time when ships of Rome were sent to Antioch for if he was going to go into Egypt, and Rome was like, no, you're not going into Egypt. They sent this guy named General Popilius, awesome name, and he came to Antioch. He's like, you're not going into Egypt. If you do, you'll make an enemy of Rome. Antiochus is like, can I have time to counsel, right? Can I go talk to my generals? And allegedly, Papilius drew a circle around him in the sand and said, you have until you step out of that circle, and then you need to answer me. And then ultimately, Antiochus backs down. And then what does he do? He goes back to his kingdom, which is over the Jews, and he is filled with wrath. And he attacks the covenant people, right? And this is a good description of what he does. Dale Ralph Davis says this. He breaks it down of what Antiochus instituted in his kind of rampage against the Jews. He stripped them of their sacrament. There was a death penalty put on for circumcising male infants. So he strips them of their sacrament. He stripped them of their sacrifices, right? He's the guy that sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple of God to Zeus. That's a lot of things wrong with that, right? And, I mean, even the pig, right? Unkosher sacrifice. 
It was all offensive. But then on top of that, right, he said, unless it's offered to the pagan, if, unless it's offered to Zeus, you can't sacrifice here. So he stripped them of their sacrifices. He then stripped them of their Sabbath. Observing it brought about the death sentence. So again, death penalty for observing the Sabbath. And then finally, he stripped them of their scriptures. Anyone caught with a Torah scroll, death penalty. So this is Antiochus IV. And so what are the schemes that we can take out of this of the Antichrist, lowercase a, and the Antichrist, capital A? They seek to strip the people of God, the church, of the sacraments, of the Lord's Supper and baptism, of being able to practice those. The sacrifice, worshiping our God in spirit and truth and holding Christ as the one true and final sacrifice for our sins. They seek to uh, strip us of the scriptures, the reading and spreading and teachings of God's word. So in a word, the Antichrist will seek to tear down the church and replace it with idolatry. So how does, this, uh, how does seeing this modeled and typified in Antioch's fourth help us to prepare to stand firm? God told the Jews ahead of time about Antiochus and what to expect. And so we have been told ahead of time as well what to expect. And so we can be prepared for it. We can think. Remedy, the way that we're saying this is remedy. God has told us what to expect so that we can even now prepare and stand firm until the end. Persevere till the end. So we're going to enter our final section, and this is maybe the most important. Um, Our third point is this, Jesus and the apostles' reading of Daniel 11. So it's important for the church to always ask the question, how did Jesus, or how did the apostles, the New Testament, how did the New Testament read the passage that I am now reading in the Old Testament? How did they interpret it? How did they read it? How did they apply it? Uh, to their people. That's an important element of when we're reading the Old Testament to ask. So what else should we as Christians do to prepare ourselves to live in a world to which the Antichrist have already gone out? First John 2.18 says it this way, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so even now many Antichrists have already come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. First John, John is referencing Jesus' teaching in Mark 13 or Matthew 24 when he tells that many false Christs and false prophets will come after him and will arise after he leaves. And his teaching then connects to passages like Daniel, particularly Daniel 11:30 through 34. So to prepare ourselves to stand firm, let's read Daniel 11 like Jesus. Let's read Daniel 11 like the church. So I've I've got a couple examples. The first one is this. We must know the Antichrists and Antichrist, the Antichrist, will be defeated by King Jesus. This is coming from 2 Thessalonians reading of Daniel 11. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4 says this. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So here's the phrase that we need to zero in on. In 2 Thessalonians, the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. This is directly taken from Daniel 11, verse 36. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. 
So when Paul is reading Daniel 11.36, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, Paul reads it of the Antichrist himself, not just Antiochus IV, but the Antichrist. Now continue reading in 2 Thessalonians. We have good news here. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 tells us the end of the Antichrist. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Just like our little theme throughout this, many nations, many plans, many expansion plans, they come to an end. It's the same way with the ultimate Antichrist. Many expansion plans, and then Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth immediately. Daniel 11.45 kind of gives us this as well. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. There's no grand description of his end. It's just, he shall come to his end, and no one's going to help him. T.S. Eliot wrote in a poem called The Hollow Man, this is the way the Antichrist ends, not with a bang, but a whimper, right? So the first thing that we can know that gives us strength is ultimately the Antichrist and the capital A Antichrist will be defeated by King Jesus, and it's the mismatch of eternity. It's not even close. All right, our second one. We should seek wisdom and understanding from God to stand firm in the right worship of God. And this is going to come from Revelation 13, their reading of Daniel 11. Revelation 13, 18 says this. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. The this in this passage is referring to the predicament of having the beast's mark and worshiping the beast, right, and not worshiping Jesus. So that's kind of the context. Now, I hesitated to use this passage because people have gone all over the place with this about microchips and Apple and all other kinds of things, and, and you know, who knows. But G.K. GK Beale uh, reads, he's helpful here. In Revelation, there's this theme of the people of God being marked on their foreheads. Uh, sometimes it's a name that no one knows Sometimes it's literally the name of Christ, but they're marked on their foreheads. And this is parallel to the not people of God worshiping the beast and being marked on their foreheads. And so his kind of intimation here is is that the people of God are those filled with the Spirit of God who rightly worship Jesus. Everyone else is those who worship the Antichrist or basically worship anyone but Jesus. So Beale also notes this, that the word wisdom and understanding all throughout Revelation, has its ties to the book of Daniel. It has its background in the book of Daniel to comprehend the latter-day visions like we've seen with Nebuchadnezzar, but even in Daniel 11, uh, 33, and then later on in Daniel 12. Daniel eleven thirty three says this, And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword, flame, by captivity, and plunder. So Daniel's context is very similar. The saints are being seduced by an antichrist, this Antiochus, right? And, um, and the only way that they will stand firm is, as verse 32 says, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Namely, those who have wisdom and understanding from God, they will be the ones that stand firm. James 1.5 says it this way, also the context of faith under fire, faith under trials. James 1.5 says this, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. 
So namely, this one is, we must seek wisdom and understanding from God in order to stand firm. He commands us to do that, and he promises that he'll give it. Anyone who asks, he'll give it. All right, third one. This is probably my favorite one. We must be washed by the blood of the Lamb. This is also from Revelation. Revelation 7.14 says this, And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's two things in this passage that connects to Daniel. First is the phrase great tribulation. It's only used in Acts 7 and in Matthew 24, elsewhere in the New Testament. In the Matthew 24 passage, Jesus is using it as an explicit reference to Daniel chapter 12. Right? So it connects in that way. This great tribulation is still talking about what's going on, at least in Daniel chapter 12. Um, during this tribulation, some are going to forsake their loyalty to God. This is, look at verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, or verse 34. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. So that same context is going on. The second way is more significant. Revelation 7 connects to Daniel in the phrase, made them white. So Daniel 11.35, some of the wise shall stumble uh, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white. Daniel 12.10 has a, a similar phrase. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. And so this is significant, right? And by the way, in the, in the text itself, this refined, made pure, made white, it, it intensifies in the original language. So it's like, oh, they, they'll be refined. And it's just kind of a common. And then it's a little bit louder. They'll be purified. And then it's even louder. Made white, right? And so brings emphasis to this made white. Well, in Revelation 7, what purifies them, because he literally quotes this made them white, um, Revelation 7 actually answers the question, well, what, what made them white? Therefore, they are... Uh, sorry, they have washed their robes and made them white, quote of Daniel, in the blood of the Lamb. So what purifies us in the midst of suffering, what keeps us pure in the midst of false teaching, is believing in Jesus Christ and the death of Jesus covering us. Being washed in the blood is what makes us white. The gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen to this kind of song that's sung by these people who have washed their robes um, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is kind of a song that's sung over them, and it, it's very reminiscent of Psalm 23. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Behold the tenderness and the gentleness of our God who pursues us in the death of Christ. We must wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb. Our final one also is a revelation text going back to Daniel. Seeing and hearing Christ sustains and keeps the church healthy. Seeing and hearing Christ sustains and keeps the church healthy. This is a little bit lengthy, but this is the vision that um, 
John sees at the beginning of Revelation, and it's, it's alluding to Daniel 10. Fudd mentioned that last week in Daniel 10. It's also alluding to things in Daniel 7. But before John writes the prophecy of Revelation, he sees Christ the same way that Daniel, before he writes this prophecy, he sees Christ. So it says this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. That's Daniel 10 language. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. That's Daniel 7, Ancient of Days language. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. That's Daniel 10 language again. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth, that's Daniel 12 language. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Daniel 10 language. And he laid his right hand on me. Daniel 10 language. And saying... Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive evermore, forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are and those that are going to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on the right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." So there's a ton of parallels going on with Revelation and Daniel here. Let me point a couple of them out. So after this vision, um, there's these seven letters written to the churches of God. And each letter kind of starts with Jesus giving a description of himself, judging the church. You're healthy here. Eh, here. Bad. Unhealthy here. And then at the end, it's a promise for those who repent and follow him, they will conquer So these churches are struggling with the same things that we find in our text in Daniel 11. Namely, outsiders are persecuting them and false teaching has crept in and is starting to persuade some of them to essentially uh, walk away from Jesus. The temptation to fall away from true worship and idolatry. So it's significant that Revelation starts off with a vision of Jesus that matches Daniel 7, 10, and Daniel 12 a little bit as well. Right? And he uses these same descriptors. Both Daniel and Revelation follow this pattern that Christ reveals himself in order to give understanding and wisdom to various visions concerning the worship of God's people. Both Daniel and Revelation see angels as representing peoples or nations, specifically the people of God. Fudd mentioned in Daniel 10 last week that Michael was over the people of God. Right. Well, in Revelation, each one of the churches... Jesus speaks to an angel of that church, and the angels are seen as over these churches, the people of God. And so there's similarity there. Uh, Daniel 11, let me, sorry, lost my vision. A vision of Christ in both places leads the biblical writer then to give words to encourage God's people to stand firm in true worship. And in the book of Revelation, we're given the pattern that the church is to follow, namely this. We are to conquer by being obedient to Christ even to the point of death and suffering. Jesus puts himself as the pattern. Jesus' crucifixion leading to his resurrection is the pattern of the church. We shall suffer leading to a resurrection as well. Choosing we cling to Christ. So fighting for a vision of Jesus Christ and fighting to hear the words of Jesus Christ are what also help us stand firm 
in the midst of false teaching and suffering that may come our way at any point. So here's kind of our final word here. Let us receive Jesus and his words from Daniel and elsewhere, knowing that he's given us these things for our own good. And here's what, this is a recap. He sovereignly and supernaturally rules over all of history down to the small nitty-gritty details. He shows us the end to prepare us to stand firm in the midst of it. And finally, Jesus and the church, their reading of Daniel 11 encourage us in a number of ways. Namely, Jesus will bring an end to the Antichrist like that. He's the stronger king. Secondly, Jesus will provide us wisdom and understanding to, st- to stand firm in the midst of these things. Thirdly, Jesus washes our robes white by his blood. It's the death of Christ that we must believe and trust in. And finally, he encourages us to be sustained by glimpses of himself and by his words to the church. So remedy, let us remain steadfast in prayer for one another, seeking to see and hear the words of Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Father, likely what I said in many ways was confusing. I pray that you would transform it into challenges and comfort and give us clarity. Give us wisdom. Show us how we ought to live our day in and day out lives. Show us how to suffer well and endure. Show us how to repudiate, to rebuke, to correct and to not give in to false teaching. And Lord, fill us with such a vision of yourself and let us hear your words and give us such a love and desire for your words that we just dwell there day and night looking to you for hope, trusting you for the future, knowing that you are the stronger king. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.